listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week May 14 to May 18. Uh, this week, our highlights included our chat with Melissa Cole, who is a UK beer expert. Highlight for us because she bought in breakfast beers. Also, we had a chat about someone, maybe, that was tap, tap, tapping on my window. <laughs> Very scary. And then Dr. Jen explained misophonia to us, which is that rage that comes over some people, some people in this room. Specifically me. When they hear repetitive sounds like the chewing of food. And it's a legitimate disorder. <laughs> And then we spoke to Nessa Mashney from the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network about the 70th anniversary of the Nakba and what's been happening in Gaza. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R. Melissa Cole is a UK food and beer expert and the author of The Little Book of Craft Beer, which is out now through Hardy Grant. She's in town for Good Beer Week, which is on now until the 20th of, of May. Welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. I'm glad I made it. <laughs> <laughs> We're delayed, but it's great that you're here. I've got to say, being an international beer writer sounds like many people's dream jobs. How did you become one? Uh, well, it doesn't suck. I'll start with that. Um, um, so I, um, my first job in, in journalism was writing for the pub trade paper. Um, and I'd also fallen in love with great beer whilst I was at university. Um, so I learned my uh, my beer craft in the old Black Bull in Preston. I took away two great loves of my life, one of which was beer and the other one was the landlord's son. Um, and uh, <laughs> Hey, listen, if you're going to have to go in home and stay with in-laws, you may as well stay with ones who own a pub. Um, so, um, so then I got... Uh, asked to judge things as journalists do usually very unqualified things but there we go and then um it turned out that uh, i've got a really good palette for these sorts of things and it went from there you're doing a bunch of talks as part of the festival one of them um on this thursday morning is on the changing face of the beer industry and i imagine many people have a sort of cliche of beer drinkers beer experts as being blokey perhaps older blokes you're neither of those things <laughs> what are you going to say at this event, how can the industry become more inclusive? The main thing that you find, and this this applies to all works of life when, you, when you're uh, talking about diversity, is people are actually quite often don't realise their blind spots. And a lot of it's not actually malice. So, for example, a lot of the sort of bawdy picture postcard, you know, seaside saucy things that you see on, on beer labels are actually very off-putting to you know, right-thinking people, but majority it's going to be women. Um, So immediately you're pretty much alienating 50% of your audience straight off the bat. But because it's just a bit fanar fanar, you know, elbow Mm. in the ribs, it's just a bit bit of bants, which makes me sick in my mouth a little bit. But, um, you know, it, it, it actually isn't. What you're doing is you're alienating people. So it's really, the thing is just to highlight things. It's not about major hair shirt. It's not about screaming and shouting at people. It's, it's none, it's not, that's none of that's very helpful although occasionally I do lose my temper on social media with people um but it it's really it's about saying look you know just guys check your privilege every so often take a look inside have you got a diverse workforce have you got have you got uh, women well represented do you have minorities well represented if not why not where have you failed to reach out to these communities and you know bring them in you've brought in a couple of tinnies I have (laughs) 
Let's talk about you've, that. You've literally uh, not been okay. looking at me this entire time. It's just been looking at, yeah, looking it's at been, the beer. It's been one eye on the beer, one eye on you. Um, what are these beers and why have you brought them in for us? Um, so I've got a couple here. So yesterday um, I went to visit La Seren, um, whose beers I adore, and um, 17 of those later we were having a great time. Um, so, yes, I, I still somehow managed to get through my event last night. Tasters, I hasten to add. Yes. Tasters, rather, rather generous ones. Um, and uh, I actually, my my sort of amazing moment yesterday was drinking their, um, their praline stout um, with truffled cheddar. Wow. Oh. And, yeah, I, it was just like, oh, hello. <laughs> this is amazing. This is a terrible job. I've yeah, got exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was teasing the head brewer, actually. It's like, oh, it's like, oh, I see the cheese has come out. It's like, doesn't this happen to you everywhere? It happens to me everywhere. <laughs> so anyway, that's a bit smug. Um, I bought um, uh, one from uh, Bad Shepherd um, because I judged with, with one of the guys there, so Derek. Like when and you're judging, wh- what are you looking for? What are you, what are you tasting for, I should say? Uh, the first... The first thing you're looking for is any brewing flaws. Um, So is there any bad brewing practice in there? So is there, for example, does it smell like cinema popcorn? Uh, Because that's a bad fermentation aspect called diacetyl. And then, or does it have a smell like a dirty drain? Well, that's bad water chemistry or it's a bacterial infection or does that lager smell sour? Well, it probably really shouldn't. Um, So you're looking for all those sorts of things. And then what you're looking for is you're looking for uh, balance and elegance. And even in really extreme beer types, Mm -hmm. you are still looking for that element of balance because... At the end of the day, beer should have a, a sense of drinkability, even if it's actually that you're only having a small glass of it because it's something mad and 10% and, you know, incredibly strong and you're having it as a digestif. Yes. Um, that doesn't matter. It still needs to have an elegance to it. And that's they're the ones that win the golds. Are there particular ways to drink beer with food? Because beer is often thought of as the drink that you go to the pub to down a few. It's not always a beer. It's not always a drink that you have with the dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What are some good kind of pairings for beer and you know? I think the the main dinners. key for me, um, and it's all about. So I've got a new book coming out in October, which is called The Beer Kitchen: The Art and Science of Cooking and Pairing with Beer. Mm. And for me, the very very first thing you need to do is kiss. So keep it simple, stupid. Oh, so right. don't don't go don't go over top. It's like you, you girls were looking at me there for a minute. Just <laughs> oh, going, she, she had to yeah. launch herself. Um, so um, I was wondering. Yeah. I thought they might clean oh. the palate before you eat. <laughs> Keep it simple, stupid. Um, so not calling you beautiful people stupid, but it's more about actually just keeping it simple initially. So find your training wheels, get to know your beer. Because you probably know your food quite well, but get to know your beer. And literally, if you have a gut reaction when you're drinking that beer, then it probably is actually the right thing to pair it. If you think, oh, my God, I fancy a pizza with this, it's probably right. And then it's about levels of intensity and levels of intensity. So if you have a very intensely flavoured beer, then you need very intensely flavoured food. Otherwise, you're going to completely blow it out of the water. And the same goes. It's why, for example, in the UK, the classic thing is like, ooh, lager and curry. Terrible pairing. Really, really strongly flavoured beer. Really? It's really strongly flavoured food with very anodyne beer. And it's just because it kind of just goes across the map. It's it's not offensive to anybody. Mm. But it doesn't actually do anything. So I'm going to crack one of these in the moment, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talking more drinking. Am I the world's biggest tease right now? Um, Because you called these, you said you bought in some breakfast beers. Yes. So these will go well with the breakfast I'm about to eat. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I sort of did that joking. I'm going to open this very carefully over here because I've been running. Oh, oh, oh sounds good. Yeah. 
Um, so good morning. The reason why I'm calling this, so this is the um, Citrace Hour from from Lasseren, and the reason why I'm calling it a breakfast beer is because a it's got fruit in it. Oh yes. And B, you guys okay sharing over there? Yes. So is this a local brewer? Yep. yep. Okay. Uh, they're in Melbourne. Has um, Melbourne got an extraordinary amount of um, small brew houses? What do you call it? breweries? It's got, it's got quite a lot of brews. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Jeff, you're not getting some any of, the of beer. this. <laughs> so, so I did say you're going to share. Apparently, the answer oh, is wow. no. Um, so it is supposed to be sour. Um, and so, not only has it got not only has it got fruit in it, but it's also uses Almost. lactobacillus, which is the bacteria that makes yogurt. So this is. Uh, Absolutely oh, a health yes. drink, right? You can taste that. It almost, <laughs> it almost does like a cross between um, like a fruit, like a tangy fruit juice and a cider with beer. But mm-hmm. you can get that yogurt taste you in there. Definitely get a yogurt. Yeah. yeah. Can, can I just ask, is there a particular way you're supposed to drink beer to appreciate it? You know, like wine drinkers say you're supposed to swivel it around your mouth, you're supposed to do this, that and the other. Look, first and foremost, it's your hard-earned money. You drink beer oh. however the, and whatever <laughs> beer you like. But um, if you would like to know the way to do it, then actually personally... I would, um, when we're assessing, we tend to use uh, wine glasses or, or, or beer glasses that are shaped very similar. So you want something with a slightly enclosed uh, nose on it, and then you need to give it a swirl. Um, it's best to put your hand over the top to keep the aroma molecules in. Then you, then you give it a good sort of quick bunny sniffs, then deeper sniffs, and then you wash it all over your palate. There you oh. go. And then you enjoy. Oh. So beer in a wine glass. Beer, yeah, if you going back to that whole dining things, actually, if you put beer in really good quality glassware, Love it changes it. your perception immediately. My auntie P- Patrice would always drink beer in a wine glass, and so good on her. Patrice, <laughs> <laughs> well done. Ahead of your time. Blazing a trail. Mm. Uh, good Beer Week is on now until the twentieth of May. There's a ton of events, and Melissa is doing a ton of them too. Best to jump on goodbeerweek.com.au. You can see the full schedule. The uh, book we've been talking about is a little book of craft beer. It's out through Hardy Grant. Our guest has been Melissa Cole. Thank you so much for coming. Thank Free you so beer. much, guys. Cheers. <laughs> Triple R. Time for weird science here on Breakfasters with Dr. Jen. Good morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning, Dr. Jeff. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, doctor. <laughs> doctor Jeff. Well, yes. you know, why I forgot not? about that. Yeah. I have absolutely no. Um, uh, ability to bestow such an honour on anybody, but you know why not? Yes, yeah, sure. You are a doctor, aren't you? I am. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Perfect, Doctor Jeff. <laughs> Please well, never. Call I didn't that know again. you were a doctor. <laughs> well, there That's we go. Exciting. Yeah. Hey, so you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about um, asteroids and how sometimes they come quite close to Earth, and yeah. should we be worried? I just read about ten minutes ago that there's one that's coming not too far from Earth early tomorrow morning. Are we going to see it tomorrow morning? Ah. Uh, I reckon if you knew where to look, you probably could. It's called 2010WC9, mm-hmm. and that's because the first time it was ever spotted was in 2010, and it's been invisible to people. Um, it's been, you know, in a place we can't see ever since. Oh. But it's um, it's about something in the vicinity of 60 to 120 metres across. So, you know, if it hit, it would be bad, but, you know, no panic. It's not coming that close. Mm. <laughs> it's going to be about half the distance between.
between us and the moon away. But that's the closest that this particular asteroid, this particular lump of stuff, will come to us in 300 years. Oh. So for people who want to see it, it's, you know, it's quite good. Like, do you need a telescope to see it? I assume so, okay. yeah. But it's going to be going past at the speed of about 45,000 kilometres an hour. So, you know, wow. it's pretty quick. Hmm. Yeah. But anyway, I thought today we would talk about something that some people have uh, know quite a lot about in this room. <laughs> and would you like to tell us what it is, Sarah? What I forgot. How do, you, how do you pronounce the... Uh, misophonia, which translates as the hatred of sound. So you know how lots of people say, oh, God, I can't stand the sound of fingernails on a chalkboard or yes. I can't stand this. You know, So lots of people have sounds they don't like. Mm-hmm. But there is actually a recognised condition out there for people who don't just dislike certain sounds but actually have a really intense physiological response to particular sounds and can go into um, outbursts of rage, can have panic attacks, can feel intense anxiety to the point that it's really quite debilitating. Mm. And when I came in this morning, Sarah's like, how did you know? Because I have that. I'm like, I didn't know. Really? Oh, didn't you? No, she wow. didn't know. She's just, just done this by accident. That was a complete coincidence. Yeah, I just think it's a really interesting topic. Uh, so, Sarah, how does it feel? So, tell us first, what sounds can't you bear? So, for me, it's it's mostly eating and mouth sounds. Which so is the most common. Mm. Yep. So, it's chewing. Um, and it doesn't even have to be chewing with your mouth open necessarily, but it's any kind of... Um, um, kind of spit mouth sound. Yep. Uh, sometimes, but the popping of um, I had a similar feeling sometimes with the popping of finger uh, knuckles. Like, knuckles. People, people, crack do, their yeah, knuckles. people just don't like that, but not yep. in the rate, not the rage. It's mostly eating for me, eating and drinking, so slurping sounds, yep. chewing sounds, uh, and sometimes a tapping on keyboards. So if it's a really light noise, the, the tapping on a keyboard can um, have the same. Yes. Trigger the same level of anger. Yesterday yeah. morning after the show, Jeff was quite happily sitting here doing some work, having a cup of tea, um, just making good use of his time, doing writing some stuff. <laughs> As it, I'm sure Jeff always does. And it drove Sarah insane. Yeah, well, and, and, and it's not that she's trying to be mean or it's not that she's, well. you know, being unreasonable. So... We've known about this for a while, but it only got a name in 2001 and it's only really in the last maybe decade that people have recognised that this isn't somebody being insensitive or oversensitive or, you know, anything else you could label it. It is actually a real condition and the things you named are the most common ones. So it's eating sounds, chewing sounds, you know, slurping soup sounds, drinking, people who kind of smack their lips, uh, breathing. Some people can't tolerate the sound of other people breathing um, and then repetitive things. Things like um, you know, wrapping your fingers on a on a bench, or tapping your toes, or keyboard, or any of these things. And the issue is that these are all everyday sounds yes. that are very difficult to get away from. And if you have this response, it can be incredibly debilitating. So I, I don't know what you do, Sarah, but there are certainly many people out there who experience this who can't eat meals in the presence of other people who have I, to eat alone. There's been a cases where so, uh, so I, I've learned how to deal with it because I know it's my fault. So I don't want people to feel shit about well, the way I'm that they're eating or whatever. I'm about to tell you it's not your fault. It's well, your experience. Yeah, it's my, yeah, it's it's my not experience. Your fault. <laughs> and it's such an extraordinary feeling of rage. I can't quite explain it. When I hear it, it almost feels like I'm compelled to punch the person. Like, it's extraordinary. It's, it's, so not, it's not a rage that yeah. I feel in yeah, any other way. That's what I've read over and over again. Yeah. I, have, I feel like I have to punch that person yeah. in the face. Yeah, it's exactly how I feel. And it makes you feel a bit crazy because you're like, mm. why is no one else, why can no one else hear Jeff slurping the way he's slurping yeah. right now? So question now? for you, do those sounds 
when you when you make those sounds, does it bother you? No. Yeah, so that's classic that, that you can tolerate. Ah. So one of the things that people do is time their own chewing with the people around them chewing so they're more aware oh. of their own sound of chewing, which doesn't bother them Because I all. found it so interesting when you were talking about it yesterday how just, you know, you said, you know how something becomes so annoying you just uh, you get angry about it? And I was like, no, I don't understand that Yeah, at so all. you don't have it. <laughs> yeah. so, so people used to think that it was kind of a part of OCD or, as I said, people were just being oversensitive but Mm. it turns out that none of that is true so what we know is that it almost always starts in childhood that there is some evidence that it um it it follows patterns in families so you said your brother my brother has it too also experiences it um we can't eat in the same room together and (laughs) (laughs) that's nice for family (laughs) catch-ups But the important thing is that there was, oh, and I should say that one, we don't have a lot of research into it, but one study suggested up to 20% of people could experience this. That was based on a study of 500 undergraduate students in the US and 20% of them experienced it to some degree. So it's always a continuum, you know. You can experience it more or less severely. But what's really important is that there was a study this year which looked at what was going on in the brain of these people to try and understand if it was a real thing. And so what they did, they had two groups of people, one people who studied... Uh, sorry, one people who had completely normal responses to sounds and then the other group who experienced misophonia. And they played them three groups of sounds. One were neutral sounds like a cafe or rain. One were sounds that most people find irritating like a baby crying or somebody screaming. And then one were these eating, kind of slurping, chewing sounds. And those two groups of people had exactly the same responses in the brain to the neutral sounds and to the scream, baby crying sounds basically. But as soon as they played these, eating sounds, completely different things were going on in the brain. So it turns out that people who experience misophonia or misophonia, I'm not quite sure which way you should say it, they had much higher activity in a part of the brain called the anterior insular cortex. It doesn't really matter what it's called. But the point is this part of the brain is really important in deciding where we focus our attention. So that's the first thing to know that you, so Sarah, you have more going on in this particular part of your brain, meaning all of a sudden you are paying incredibly high attention to these sounds, mm. much more so than another person like the rest of us. I go, oh, I didn't even notice that you were chewing. Mm. You know, I didn't even hear it. But importantly, you also have more connections between that part of your brain and between the um, amygdala and the hippocampus, which we've talked about lots of times because they're involved in emotion. So essentially, when you hear these sounds, you are completely absorbed by them. You're not capable of, of uh, your attention being paid anywhere else. And you're, you've got what's called hyperconnectivity with all these additional neurons compared to people who don't have misophonia, mm-hmm. um, you know, el- eliciting this incredibly strong emotional response. So your anger or panic or anxiety or any of these things is completely out of your control. Oh, so your brain is acting really differently to somebody who doesn't have it's, the condition. It's kind of a relief because they, when me and Andrew would eat together, he often says to me, I can't. It's frustrating for him because I grease him when he's making those noises. Like you're stressed. It's, it's, you're having a stress response. Yeah, and it's really difficult yeah. for me to control that. Sometimes I turn things up so I can't hear. Like I'll turn the TV up. Or the other day I turned music up over Jeff because I could hear him, the tapping and the yep. and the, and the drinking. Um, so that's interesting that it's, it is uncontrollable because I, I feel it's followed by guilt because you feel like a bit of a... 
Yeah. So, saying, you know, so your your brain means so there's nothing you can do about this. This is a response that your brain is having. And we don't it's know kind of yet whether it is a genetic thing and that explains why it runs in families. We don't know that yet. It's quite early in the research days. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is that um, what's going on in the brain is very similar to, you know, we talk about a fight or flight response. You're basically having the same response. So your heart rate is going up, you're sweating and you're pretty much in panic mode. So your brain is identifying these sounds as something that is a threat to you. Now, we know that that's ridiculous because somebody eating beside you isn't a threat, but the point is for whatever reason, your brain is identifying it as a threat Mm. and you're going into a full-on, you know, stress response which can play out as panic or can play out as anger. Is there anything other than having other noises or leaving the room, is there anything else that someone that has it can do? Well, I think that's the, that's the next stage in this research. This research has only just come out and now mm-hmm. they're going to try and work out whether understanding what's going on in the brain means they can come up with treatments. But at the moment, no. Everyone I read basically said, you know, either I have to mask the sound or I have to uh, remove myself from the sound. You know, I read one story, a woman saying, you know, on the train I have to move carriages every few minutes because if someone sits next to me who's sniffing or who's typing or doing any other number of things, I can't tolerate it. Yeah, but so I have moved. to go somewhere else. Do, do they... Yeah. Wow. Does anyone have any ideas to why the particular sounds? I mean, eating has sort of social connotations. Is it anything to do with that or is it just the frequency or just the... Such a good question and it was the first thing that came to my mind and I didn't find anything written about it. I don't know. Wow. Because, I mean, I wonder if it's... I mean, the amygdala and the um, hippocampus are also very strongly involved in memory. So there's the suggestion that once you've had one bad experience of being feeling stressed by these sounds, that you're also, you know, recollecting previous times and getting more stress. So I wonder if they're just... Because they're so common, because, you know, who wouldn't be exposed to the sounds of somebody else eating? Because eating is such a communal thing that it's just become that way. think that it, it started when your siblings would eat their wheat bix really loudly? Uh, I thought it started with their dad oh, because yeah. dad ate his uh, wheat bix in a really yeah. loud way, like you see, very fast and kind of slurp. And my brother and I sat either side of him when we sat at the breakfast table as really, really young kids. And I actually yeah. thought that the two of us had sat closest to dad hearing him eating oh. like that and we developed it. Yeah, well, that kind of fits with what they're finding, this this whole kind of memory thing. So it's definitely possible. So if your brain kind of started going into overdrive as a child, hearing that sound for whatever reason, and then it kind of built, you know, more and more as you were exposed to it again and again, that, that kind of makes sense. But I don't think we fully understand yet why and how, but at least for sufferers out there who've been feeling like um, either guilty or like it wasn't real and people didn't believe them, we now have evidence that there is absolutely something different going on in the brain and at this at the moment we don't know how to control it. Oh, this is going to so. smooth over many difficult relationships in my life. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to have been of service to you this morning, Sarah. I had no idea. Well, fascinating as always, Dr Jen. We'll talk to you again soon. See ya. Three. Triple. You're tuned to Breakfast is here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. We've seen some horrific scenes in Gaza over the last few days. To talk about those and the 70th anniversary of the event that Palestinians call the Nakba, we're joined by Nasser Mashni, a board member from the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What was the Nakba? What happened 70 years ago? Uh, so the Palestinians commemorate the Nakba as the 70 years since the the loss of Palestine. This, this, uh, the state of Israel was established on the 15th of May and we uh, commemorate the 14th as the day when we lost Palestine. 
And what does that have to do with the rallies we've been seeing in Gaza over recent weeks? Yeah, so for the past six weeks, the 30th of March is what Palestinians called Land Day. And and that commemorates a massacre within uh, Israel proper of um, Palestinians that were protesting against the loss of land within uh, Palestinian villages within Israel. And uh, every Friday they were protesting. And over the past six weeks, we've seen in excess of 100 people uh, executed, we, we say, murdered, not in clashes, but in, in cold-blooded murder, uh, culminating in on Monday night on, in, into Tuesday in 60-plus people being killed and overnight an eight-month-old girl. So, you know, really tragic events. Uh, Donald Trump has recently moved the American embassy to Jerusalem. Why is that a significant um, development? Well, it's, it's a, a very significant development in the in the terms of the fact that Jerusalem was a, uh, a final status issue, something that was supposed to be negotiated between the Palestinians and the Israelis in final status. Uh, Post-Oslo, we remember Yasser Arafat and Shimon Peres and uh, Yitzhak Rabin shaking hands, White House lawns. That's now getting on 30 years ago. And we were supposed to be discussing a peace process that saw a two-state solution, you know, international consensus, uh, happen within that period. Now, 30 years later, we still don't have a two-state solution. Jerusalem, which is uh, so very important to all three religions, Jews, Muslims and Christians, that's now been taken off the table. In fact, Israel's been rewarded with, with, no, with no, um, nothing given to the Palestinians. Two things that that means. Number one is that internationally we've given Israel the green light to um, take land which is inadmissible because of war. And that, that sets an un- incredible precedent worldwide. But also it exposes uh, the United States as no longer as an impartial uh, party to, to the negotiations. So the Palestinians are now looking elsewhere and they've not engaged with the United States uh, since the announcement from uh, Donald Trump. And when it, you know, obviously we're looking for some other body to come in and, and uh, help. Essentially, where does that leave Palestinians, like in terms of where they live? Mm-hmm. So, so Palestinians today live under Israeli control inside the borders of historic Palestine, which is, you know, Israel proper, East Jerusalem, West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And so the Israel, the, the, uh, the regime that controls the, uh, the, all of those borders, administers the birth registry, the death registry, the money, the taxation system, border control of all of those people. Some of them celebrate God on Friday, Muslims. Some of them celebrate God on Saturday, Jews. And some of them celebrate God on Sunday, Christians. Now, um, if you are fortunate enough to celebrate God on a Saturday, you get a level of privilege that is denied those other two religions. Um, and that's the reality. And today, you know, we, we, we're very clear in calling the system that operates within, uh, most, uh, within historic Palestine as apartheid. Two peoples, two sets of laws. Before this move by Trump, what, where were relations at? Oh, so, so they've been at a stalemate for the best part of well, a decade. Um, and more tense, though, than they had been previously for I, any I, reason? I think more tense in the sense that people had hope. Yeah, I remember mm. 1993 and, and the handshake and I was you know, in my early 20s and you know, we were very optimistic. My father, who was a refugee, exiled, thrown from his home and his land. Uh, we had hopes, you know, look, I'm an Australian. I was born here. My children were born here. I should have the right to go back. You know, uh, 70 years since my dispossession, my right is less than a Jew's dispossession of 2,000 years ago. So as, as a person whose grandfather is buried within historic Palestine, I'm unable to visit him. 
I have to apply for a, a passport. But someone who uh, celebrates on a Saturday, a Jewish person, can at any time go back to Israel, claim full citizenship, be given all sorts of rights that are denied me. Um, and, and, and that's the biggest challenge. Externally, internally, the loss of hope, you know, the despair. Mm-hmm. Palestinians are like everybody else. I mean, we want to have fun and, you know, go to the movies and educate our children and have, you know, enjoy a normal life. Now, if you keep denying a people that and keep oppressing them, and if you look at specifically Gaza, you know, we're into our 11th year of the most barbaric siege. And siege, you know, is a medieval term when we surrounded a castle, cut the water off, didn't let food in, and eventually forced the occupants of the castle to give up. For 11 years, Israel has calculated the calorific intake of every Gazan and only allowed that much food in. The UN has said by 2020, Gaza will be uninhabitable for humans. There's 2 million people in there. 70% of them are refugees from within Israel. When Israel was granted uh, uh, a place at the United Nations, one of the conditions of them uh, becoming a member of the United Nations was the full application of UN Resolution 194, which said they must allow the refugees to go home. Now, 1.4 million of them sit in Gaza, in squalor, 70% unemployment, you know, terrible conditions, tried to get home. Now, what the Israelis did was raise mounds of dirt, position 100 snipers on that border. It's an electrified fence. And just, you know, went on a turkey shoot. Mm. Has the nature of Palestinian resistance changed over the past few decades? I mean, one of the things that's been noteworthy about the recent um, demonstrations has seemed much more like a civil rights protest, whereas in the past there'd been more of a focus on the armed struggle. Absolutely. Uh, look, this is being framed as some sort, sort of Hamas plot, but in fact the, the Great Return March was a, a civilian-led uh, initiative. These were people that said, enough, I mean, I'm dying here in Gaza. I can't get out. Nobody can come and see me. There is no food. I don't have a job. You know, I've got no hope. I'm walking home. And it's Gandhian. I'm trying to work out the word for Gandhi, yeah. And and what they were met with is the most violent... I mean, you've got a a nuclear power with aircrafts. You can find another way to stop people marching at your border. I mean, it's an electric fence. Nobody's getting through. Mm. And, so, sorry, moving forward, the Palestinians are now working towards civil disobedience internally, but also a boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign, which is a, 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 a civilian-led movement generated from within Palestine that is gr- growing internationally. Were you surprised at the reaction to these killings? I mean, I'm fairly cynical about everything, but gosh... When you see scenes of people being shot down like this and then statements from politicians, more or less, if they weren't siding openly with the Israelis, blaming both sides, as if the people being shot down were just as guilty as the people doing the sh- shooting. And I thought there's no other issue where this would happen. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's very Orwellian. And the, 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 the otherness of an Arab and particularly a Palestinian, and then a Gazan, um, you know, goes back to collateral damage in Gulf War One and George Bush. Yeah, look, it, it, it's, it's really sickening, the language of how a civilian getting shot by a sniper from hundreds of metres away can be termed a clash and not an execution or a murder. It, it just beggars belief. Hmm. Is it likely that any other world powers or countries are going to stand up and say anything about this? 
Look, I, I just heard in your news just before I came on that uh, Angela Merkel's calling for an investigation. There was a minute silence in the UN last night. The reality is that these protests have gone on for now. This is our sixth week. It was only because we hit the magic number of X amount of Palestinian blood that it's now media. Yeah, mm-hmm. why wasn't we? Why, why weren't we talking about this on the thirtieth of March, on the first week of the, the four weeks in April? Because sixty Palestinians died. That's the trigger. You know, it might be that sixty Palestinians equals one white person in Paris. Yeah, um, it's it's a reality and it's an indictment on on our media. You know, uh, Murdoch Press, Fairfax, etc. It just doesn't get the airtime it deserves. Uh, there are some protests taking place here in Melbourne. Tell them, tell us about those. Yeah, so on the state uh, on Saturday at twelve pm at the state library, we're you know calling on all people of good conscience uh, to come along and protest uh, the continuation uh, of the of the barbarity that is occurring within Palestine and Israel, and to um, really call our government out and ask them to to stand up. I mean, yesterday Malcolm Turnbull said that. Um, Hamas was driving these people to the border. I mean, nobody's driving to the border. They've lived a life of depravity and they they just don't want to die silently. Hmm. I mean, at some point you give up all hope and you think, well, at least if I get shot, somebody might speak up. More information is available from the Australian-Palestinian Advocacy Network. We've been speaking to NASA Mashni, a board member from that group. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Three, triple, ah. You're listening to Breakfasters. <laughs> Splendid. Oh, I was wondering what you were doing with your fingers. I was just Yay. doing... Like wiggle... Wiggle fingers. Mm. Uh, hey, I had a bit of a um, dramatic evening last night. Oh, what Did happened? you? Yeah. Have we not talked about this until now? Wow, saving it. Oh. What a pro. <laughs> um, and also... I use the word dramatic, but maybe I shouldn't. But here's the thing: um, I went to got into bed uh, at a reasonable hour. I was like maybe halfway through watching Deep Impact, and was like, I know what's going to happen. Let's <coughs> hop into bed. Don't need to see the rest. Does it hit the earth? Read a book. Is that about yeah. an asteroid hitting the earth? Spoiler. Yeah. Have you seen it? No. It's pretty. It's Is worth it? watching. Mm. But it's a, like it's a hangover movie. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and it's, you know, lots of um, it's a, you know your classic Hollywood blockbuster. Um, but it's very silly. People can watch it as that asteroid Doctor Jen told us about yeah, exactly. hurdles towards the Earth tomorrow. That's what I was thinking about when she was mm. talking about mm. it. Um, it. It's very silly because uh, there's no spoilers in it. But basically, um, people they send up oil. Riggers, not the people that dig for oil, they send them up as a as um, instead of uh, to drill into this asteroid so they can blow it up before it gets ah. to Earth. And Ben Affleck, who's in it, was like, "Why wouldn't you train astronauts to to learn how to dig? dig. Yeah, which would make much more sense. Than wouldn't it? Oil yeah. diggers how right. to be an astronaut. Yeah. But Bruce Willis is in it, isn't he? Yeah, and I think is it must. It may be George Lucas film or one of the other, or Spielberg, one of those, yeah. was like, don't you argue with me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to talk about that. Um, so uh, got ready for bed, into bed, reading a book. Kath um, had gotten into bed a little bit earlier and she'd finished reading her book and was uh, had just gone to sleep and I heard um, outside I could hear this tapping on a window, just a gentle tap. Oh no! On a window, but it was like 
not the window, not my bedroom window. Mm. And I thought, well, that's that's somewhere nearby, but not my window. But then I was thinking, well, who's Window Who's the window is it? So I feel nothing good comes of because people taking yeah. windows. Like I'm the only one on on that on street level yeah. with a window. It could only be your window being tapped. And then I'm thinking, well, what else is nearby? Like there's other windows are too far away and I'm like, well, it's not my bedroom window. Maybe someone's tapping on the on the bathroom oh. window. That's even or maybe, creepier. Or maybe yeah, around the side. So was your instinct then to look out the window or were you too scared to look out? I was a bit scared. And, uh. I, I looked at Kath and was about to nudge her and say, well, can you hear that? Can you hear that? But I thought, oh, no, I'll leave it for us. I'll leave it because it was still – because it didn't – and it was that – it wasn't constant knocking. It mm. was a, just a little tap, tap and then a long pause and then another tap. Like someone was trying to – like you'd – Get um, someone's attention. Yeah. Creep into a bedroom perhaps. Yeah. Get someone's attention but in a – you're worried that they were asleep. Oh. And it's, so it's a little tap, tap, hey – are you awake? Get up. Were you thinking a ghost or a robber? I was thinking uh, a robber or um, someone that had the wrong house. I actually thought maybe Sarah had been at the tote and maybe because <laughs> you did say. As if. <laughs> I, I did say I would do that one yeah, day. Yeah, and I thought, or maybe, or maybe it is someone that. Just that, a crazy night out on the Tuesday night at the tote, getting yeah. drunk and tapping on your window. That's one way to generate yeah. talk practice. <laughs> yeah. I thought, well, maybe it is just someone that, you know, a friend that knows that I'm and is a bit drunk and is like, come over and mm-hmm. get up, mate, come on. Kappa would do that, someone like that. I reckon Kappa would, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then, but then I wasn't too concerned because I knew if someone was nearby um, tapping on the window, like the dogs would would bark. The dogs oh, would be barking. Course, yeah. So I was like, oh, the dogs aren't barking. This isn't a problem. I'm probably just hearing things and it's probably a long way away. I wouldn't. But then Lloyd started going, this really long, low growl. And I went, oh, well, this changes things now, doesn't it? (laughs) If Lloyd's on the case. (laughs) Yeah. And then so, because I've been reading my book and I was like, well, I can't read my book anymore. I'm just going to have to lie there in, in silence. I'd turn the light off and just lay there. Did you, why did why you do did you that? Why turn the light off? Why didn't you just go and pick up a knife and check out the window? I don't want to. I I don't want to. It's like a, a ghost, right? I'm, you don't want to see the thing that yeah, might be there. Yeah. Oh. I don't want to do, investigate that yeah. at all. Wouldn't it be scarier to be in the dark though? No. Well. I once investigated the sound and there was someone at my window. Really? Yeah. So that's more terrifying. It was actually. When I lived in Sydney, Andrew and I, the night before we were moving back to Melbourne, had packed up everything and I had my bike chained up at the front of the house. We lived in a terrace that was kind of immediately on the footpath. And I heard clanking at the window and I thought, that's not, I'm imagining that. And then I thought, no, that's really loud Mm. clanking. And then I like peered through the blinds and there was a person leaning in in front of my window. (gasps) Like their face was so close to my my face trying to get my bike out to steal my bike. What he do with like like eye contact? Like a robber eye contact. They were so close to me on the other side of the glass. But the funny thing is I looked up and as they looked up, they didn't expect for my face to be in front of their face. And I went, 
what are you doing with my <gasps> bike? I tried to put on this really voice and they looked up and caught my and got my face and just freaked out. Like they screamed and dropped the bike and just ran off into the night. Oh, you got him. Oh, yeah. That was something of a role reversal, wasn't it? Was, it was, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Anyway. What are you doing <laughs> yeah, that with was my, my bike? Oh my bike. <laughs> Way to go. Thanks, mate. I realised I'd like to... Teach them to rob the bike of a Satanist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, I'd like to think that I would, you know, have get up and, and kind of go, what are you doing? Get out of here. Have that kind of approach. But I just didn't want to get out of bed. No, fair enough. And I thought if I if I turn the light out and um, just pretend it's not happening, I could just go to sleep and not worry about it. So that's right. exactly what I did. Really? Turns out I don't have fight or flight. I just have <laughs> sleep. Lay down and have a nap. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.